as one of the only Israelis in the entire world who has contact with Hamas. Are you, are you, are you still in contact with them? You still? I am. Welcome to Standing Up. And we're live. Welcome, Gershon. Thank you. So I see behind you a book in pursuit of peace in Israel and Palestine. It's one in my hands. There we go. So you wrote that book. Right. This book is a, a book of 38 years of insights, lessons learned, experiences that I've had in working cross boundaries between Israel and Palestine. It was published last year by University, Vanderbilt University Press. I got permission to run a soft cover edition in Israel, which I sell in Israel and Palestine at cost. And in November, it'll probably be published in Arabic in Lebanon and, and Jordan, which will, is a great achievement. It's also coming out in Portuguese in Brazil. In fact, I think it's already been published. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. I still haven't gotten my hands on one, but I would love to read it. I'll make sure you get um, your experience in the conflict is eight years longer than my entire life so I'm <laughs> sure I would have a, a lot to learn there where, where do you think we are when it comes to the state of the conflict today I know many people are losing hope definitely people have lost hope in the two-state solution what, what are your feelings well I think that uh, um, the lessons learned from the failures of the, the Oslo peace process which can only be summed up as a failure is that at the current time in our history, with our current leadership and political constellations, both in Israel and Palestine, there's probably a zero chance of a negotiated agreement between Israel and Palestine at this point. Um, with that being said, the reality on the ground doesn't stand still. It gets worse all the time. The ironic or the tragic thing that we face is that a majority of Israelis and a majority of Palestinians they say, we want peace, but they don't. So that we have this very strong perception that both sides take very little responsibility for the failure of the peace process, and blame the other side entirely. And as a result, the political reality on the ground on both sides of the conflict is that we give each other messages every day that there are no partners for peace. And this is a confirmed sense of reality of both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, so what I believe that we need to do is what I started doing 40 years ago was trying to develop a vision that could be realistic and hopeful and answer the basic needs of both sides and answer what this conflict is essentially about. It's a conflict about identity. It's a conflict about territory. It's about a, a conflict where we claim, we being both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, claim that we give our identity to this land and we take our identity from it, and therefore it belongs to us. Um, the, the old vision of partition that was actually created in 1936, 1937, seems to be uh, beyond us. The reality on the ground is, is one which doesn't seem able to be um, consistent with the idea of partition into two separate states, certainly not the way that the paradigm of Oslo developed into a hard, partition, separation, divorce, with walls and fences between us. This is not a viable solution at this point, um, and we need to create a new vision. That vision needs to be created by Israelis and Palestinians. I say 40 years because I wrote my first article supporting a two-state solution uh, back in 1975 when I was a student in university. 
and published it in a Jewish newspaper in Berkeley, California. And at that time, there were maybe 1%, 2% of Israelis who believed that the creation of a Palestinian state next to Israel is what needs to happen. And I think when we talk about alternative solutions today, whether it be one state, two states, three states, 10 states, 100 states, or a hybrid, federation, confederation, whatever it is, the, the model is going to take time to develop, and we're going to have to take a lot of time to figure out how to make it work, and then to convince people along the way. And during that time, we're going to need to change the relations between Israelis and Palestinians here on the ground. Yes, yeah, so, you know, you, you mentioned, in one sense, you mentioned that in the 70s, way fewer Israelis supported uh, the idea of a Palestinian state. So it almost seems like progress has been made in one sense, unless you don't believe in a two-state solution, then you'd say we're regressing. But on the other hand, you also acknowledge that it seems like both sides are becoming more extreme, and that kind of happens with despair. It's something like I saw, you know, polling from a few years ago, 70-something percent of Israelis think that peace won't be attained anytime in the next hundred years, and the number for Palestinians is like 91 percent. So with such levels of despair, we could see why, why that fuels radicalization. And that kind of gets us farther away from electing the leaders we need to, to you know, bring us to a place where, where we can build peace. So it's kind of like we're stuck in this unfortunate like Kafka trap where, you know, the longer, the longer the conflict goes on, the more extreme we become, the more extreme we become, the less likely we are, we are to elect leaders who can bring peace and the less likely we are to be able to engage in dialogue with one another and build common ground. I, I think that's true, but I would add a word of reservation. Um, that's the major events of the last 50 years were not predicted, predicted or, or analyzed by the experts. The experts usually get it wrong. Um, the unexpected occurs much more than the expected. We look at the changes that took place in South Africa. We look at the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, so many major developments in our history. Um, when we started the official peace process with, say, the Madrid Conference in 91, we thought we were way ahead of Northern Ireland. And, and look at now the situation where Northern Ireland is so much further ahead of us. So things could change rather rapidly based on um, personalities of leaders and events that take place on the ground. And we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow morning. So I, I would put that in as a, uh, as a reservation. I would also say that um, over the past 20 years or so, if there had been a genuine peace treaty put down on the table, my estimation is that 70% of Israelis and 70% of Palestinians would have supported it. I think we have a built-in 30% on both sides who will reject any peace agreement between the two parties, regardless of what it says. They'll just reject it outright. But we have a potential majority of 70% of Israelis and Palestinians who would vote in favor of a genuine peace treaty. Uh, genuine means different things to different people. Um, but I, I don't see the leaders at this point who are capable of negotiating, nor is the Israeli-Palestinian issue of importance on the international agenda to put any kind of international pressure on the Israeli and Palestinian leaders and people to force us into a situation where we're negotiating again. There is no imposed solution that will work, that will never happen. And there's no way that the, the outside world can force us to do something that we really don't want to do. But there are things that could happen both internationally and locally that can encourage us to move in the right direction.
which is not happening now. So, you know, I've always remained hopeful just by virtue of the fact that being hopeful is better than being hopeless. But thank you for reinforcing my hopefulness with actual evidence that the past shows that just when we thought we could not solve a conflict, the conflict was solved. So I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, one one area of concern I hear from many Israelis, and I'm, I'm still not great at giving a response to this, is that they say, we'll never be accepted on this land no matter what. That we've tried, we've tried, we've tried, no matter how many peace agreements we have, they're rejected and we're met with more terror. Uh, they point to what happened in Gaza where Hamas took over once they had free elections, once we disengaged and they had free elections. What, what can we tell Israelis to give them hope that there is a partner for peace amongst the Palestinians? You and I have experienced it through our, our dialogue, through our, through our experience with Palestinians, but many Israelis do not buy this. I think it's important to understand that um, it is extraordinarily difficult for Palestinians to recognize the moral legitimacy of the Jewish people to have a state in this land when that narrative, the Zionist Jewish national narrative, is essentially a denial of their own narrative, narrative of their existence as a native people in this land, and narrative of their experiences suffering at the hands of Zionism and the founding of the State of Israel. Um, there's a difference between accepting Israel's moral right to exist, its legitimacy in terms of what we as Jews perceive as our right to be here in this land, and accepting Israel as a country. I like to remind people that, in fact, in 1993, at the time of the signing of the Oslo Agreement, Yasser Arafat did, in fact, recognize the state of Israel and, ag and agree to live in peace with Israel. Um, Israelis, on the other hand, never recognized the Palestinians' right to a state. Never. It's never been recognized by Israel. The two-state solution has never been mandated as an official policy of the government of Israel or the Knesset of Israel, whereas the Palestinians did recognize Israel. And, in fact, when they entered in negotiations, only claim 22% of the land between the river and the sea, the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. They left behind their vision that 100% of the land of Palestine between the river and the sea belongs to them. And the Oslo peace process and the evidence of that in all the negotiations on permanent status between Israel and the Palestinians, the Palestinians' demands never exceeded the 22%. They never went back to the claim that we want Haifa, Ramli, Lud, and Akko. They remain that their demands are the 22%. They even compromised on those demands, saying that the Green Line, the pre-1967 borders or the 1949 armistice lines, whatever you want to call them, are not holy. They agreed to the principle of territorial swaps, recognizing the reality on the ground where Israel illegally built settlements in territory that it occupied in 1967. So the Palestinians said, okay, the Green Line is not holy, we will compromise. I'd further say that when we look at the Hamas victory and the disengagement, that it was the Israelis who refused to negotiate the disengagement, the transfer of the Gaza Strip to the Palestinian Authority, to Mahmoud Abbas, who Ariel Sharon called a chick without feathers, a non-partner, where the Palestinians had established a whole administrative mechanism to take over Gaza in a coordinated way from Israel. Israel decided that it would not negotiate. It was withdrawing unilaterally. And the result of unilateralism is what developed afterwards. Hamas won the narrative. Who got Israel to leave Gaza? Hamas, not Mahmoud Abbas, who was willing to negotiate, who called for peace. It was Hamas who claimed 
and the Palestinian street bought it. In addition to Hamas victory being credited to the existing corruption of the Arafat regime that was taken over by Mahmoud Abbas, I know Palestinian Christians who are certainly not Islamic fundamentalists who voted for Hamas as a protest vote. They just didn't think that Hamas would win. So the vote for Hamas is not an indication of a change of Palestinian attitudes that they have to destroy Israel. Um, I, I think that the record shows that when we were in a genuine peace process, we were negotiating, there was hope on the Palestinian side, the Palestinian street was behind the peace process. Today, it's a totally different story because today we just see an entrenchment of the occupation, the expansion of settlements, the talk of, of annexation, the Trump plan, which is granting 30% of the 22% to Israel gratis without any negotiations and the creation of a Palestinian state, which looks a lot more like Swiss cheese than anything else, um, an impossible reality for Palestinians to, to accept. So um, it's difficult to convince people they're their partners when they see that reality on the ground. Right. It's almost like the, the most recent Trump peace plan was set up in a way that is known that the Palestinians would say no, and then it makes them seem like they're rejecting yet another peace agreement. Right. As, as someone who read the Trump plan from cover to cover, there are actually a lot of positive elements in it. All the economic uh, incentives that were put in the recognition of needing to build a, a contiguous Palestinian state um, the, the development of infrastructure, the development in education, all these aspects of the plans that were very good. But it's a non-starter because it begins with first granting Israel the right to annex 30% of the land and only then talking about the creation of a Palestinian state. And even within that Palestinian state, East Jerusalem doesn't belong to the Palestinians. They get a small capital outside of Jerusalem and, and, and it doesn't deal with any of the core issues in a serious way. You mentioned that Israel never recognized a Palestinian state because well, it was the right of the Palestinian people to a state, right? So when they agree to like uh, the, the Oslo Agreement or uh, Camp David Accords, wouldn't that be them essentially agreeing to the Palestinian right to a state? No, not not explicitly and not implicitly, because when Yasser Arafat gave Yitzhak Rabin the letter recognizing the state of Israel and its right to exist, the state of Israel gave Yasser Arafat the letter which recognized the PLO as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. There was no recognition ever by Israel of the right of Palestinians to self-determination within the land of Palestine, never, never been recognized. We talk about a two-state solution. We talk about governments that ran for elections on the basis of supporting a two-state solution, show me anywhere in the bylaws of any government in the history of Israel where it says the government of Israel supports and is working toward a two-state solution. It's not there. So I, I feel like people would say that, some would contest and say, it's not in the bylaws, but it was you know, put into agreement by agreeing to these some of these peace agreements, and then because they were rejected that it never went through the, the Knesset. Well, it's important to remember that we never signed the peace agreement with the Palestinians. The Oslo agreement or six agreements that we signed with the Palestinians under Oslo were process agreements. They were agreements on how to negotiate the end of the conflict. And in the negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians on permanent status, which took place in three main sets of negotiations, one in Camp David in July of 2000, 
in Taba in, July, in January of 2001, and in Annapolis in 2007-2008. It is true that the positions that were negotiated at the table were uh, to create a two-state solution, but the Israelis and the Palestinians never reached full agreement. We came close in Annapolis. The direct negotiations that took place between Mahmoud Abbas and Ehud Olmert after 42 meetings brought us very close to reaching an agreement on all the final status issues. And to the surprise of everyone, the, the end positions uh, where, where there remained the main gaps were not on Jerusalem and were not on refugees. It was on real estate. It was on the size of the Israeli annexation and swap of territory. And it mainly concerned the northern settlement of Ariel, which is 26 kilometers in the middle of the West Bank and included a possible annexation of 86,000 Palestinians into Israel. So that was the main point of disagreement. They never got finalized because Omer got indicted and, and resigned from being head of Kadima and resigned from being prime minister. We had another war in Gaza also, which prevented the continuation of the negotiations. But Mahmoud Abbas has said over the years, in fact, two weeks ago said, we're willing to renew the negotiations with Israel on the basis of where they ended. Um, Palestinians aren't going to agree to go back to zero and start negotiating. They want to continue where the negotiations ended. And of course, Netanyahu is not a partner for that. I think, I think uh, w one of the big mistakes that was made was a demand by Tzipi Livni back in 2008 uh, at the time of Annapolis when she demanded that the Palestinians recognize Israel as a Jewish state. The Palestinians fell into the trap by saying, we will never recognize Israel as a Jewish state. We recognize the state of Israel. You Jews define what your state is. We recognize your state. We're not going to define it for you. But that statement by the Palestinians led them into a trap that the Israelis said, see, they're not willing to recognize our legitimacy. They don't really recognize us. And this is a part of the trap that's been going on. I spent a few hours with Mahmoud Abbas talking about this issue of recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. And we came out with three alternative sets of language that he said he could accept at the end of a negotiating process when the Palestinian rights are recognized. And I tried to present those to Netanyahu. I met with a minister in the Israeli government. I might as well say his name because who cares? Sahi Negbi. I met with him in the Knesset. We had lunch together. And at the lunch table, when I told him about this and suggested that he meet with Mahmoud Abbas, he laughed at me and he said, I'm surprised at you. You know, this is not an issue really for Netanyahu. It's, it's a reason for us to, to not go into negotiations with them. So, I mean, that was evidence. I carried messages three times from uh, Mahmoud Abbas to Netanyahu uh, before, um, years ago already, to enter into secret direct negotiations, and Netanyahu rejected it. One of the times, I, I'll note, was rejected and vetoed by Kerry when he was Secretary of State and didn't want any secret negotiations going on while he was trying to run a negotiation. Um, and I think that the Palestinians themselves have difficulties in, in bringing issues into a real public debate. Listen, there's going to have to be real compromise on the issue of Palestinian refugees and the right of return in any future agreement. It's gonna to have to be limited, it's gonna to have to be symbolic, it's gonna have to be based on quotas, whatever the solution is, there has never been a serious conversation between the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian public on the issue of refugees and their right of return. Never, and this is something that they've avoided doing. 
I think that also we need to face the reality that the Palestinian educational system today is really bad on what they teach their kids about Israel and about Jews and about Zionism and about the conflict. And the curriculum, the textbooks keep getting worse and worse from year to year as the conflict continues. So we don't see an improvement there. <clears throat> and I would say that one of the lessons we've learned, <clears throat> sorry, is that this issue of education and messaging and incitement has to be a part and parcel of any peace process. It can't be something that comes afterwards. It has to be something that goes in parallel with the peace process, and it has to take place on both sides. That's a very good point, education. Um, it's very hard to build peace with a population that is either educated to hate or fear the other side and is just not taught anything about their legitimacy as a people. Palestinians are taught to deny the Holocaust, they're taught that it's fake, they're taught that we don't have any real genuine connection to this land, that we're just European colonizers. Um, and it seems like they're also taught that the only way to liberation is through resistance, and often violent resistance. And on the Israeli side, we are not taught any recognition of, of the Palestinian people, the Palestinian narrative, the the concept of the Nakba is is mocked. It's not recognized, uh, and I'd say this might be almost the most important. We're not taught each other's language, and how can we ever expect to make peace with a population if we cannot speak their language? I mean, even it's very very true. It's it's one of the crimes I think of our educational systems on both sides. I want to add that on the Israeli side, not only don't we teach the narrative or anything about the Palestinian people and their history and their rights. But even in the framework of teaching about the Oslo agreements, we teach our people, in fact, this is the, the, the belief of most Israelis is that the Palestinians agreed that Area C of the West Bank is ours. It's under Israeli sovereignty. And that was never part of the agreement, Area C. The whole allocation of the land here, A, B, and C in the Oslo agreements was supposed to be for a five-year period of time and not longer than that. And Israel was never granted sovereignty by agreement. It was given control over the territory, which is 62% of the West Bank that the Israeli side now wants to annex. But no one ever agreed, no one in the entire international community ever agreed that that's Israeli sovereign land. And what do you, what do you say to the people, and th this is a growing narrative that uh, Jews are indigenous to this land and Palestinians are not. They, maybe they're native, but they're not indigenous and indigenous rights should grant them sovereignty over the entire land. I'm sure you've heard yeah, that. I think, it's, um, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, argument. Um, uh, when I bring together a group of Israelis and ask the Israelis in the room where they're from, you get from 50 different countries, and then you talk about indigenous people. Um, we were indigenous here 2,000 years ago. I'm a new immigrant to this land. I immigrated here 41 years ago. Um, my kids are native. My wife is native-born, but her parents came from Iraq. I mean, every other Israeli comes from somewhere else. So we can claim that this is our ancestral land, that the story of our people is in the hilltops and the valleys of Judea and Samaria. I think there's no denying that. But to go from that to call us an indigenous people when we were basically out of this land for 2,000 years is quite difficult. Where the majority of Palestinians can trace their roots back to this land for generations, 
Of course, there are Palestinians who immigrated here at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. There are Palestinians with the name Masri, which means that they came from Egypt. And the famous Alami family in Jerusalem 500 years ago came from Morocco. And the Hijazi family came from the Hijaz, which is now Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula. And the Halabi family came from Halab in Syria. But these people have been here for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 500 years. Um, I, th I think it's difficult to claim that they are not indigenous people to this land. So I, I think it's a really, it's, it's kind of argument of whose is bigger, uh, whose history was first. Um, we claim that we were here first, King David. They claim that King David is a, is a Muslim prophet. And then the Jews come along and say, but Islam didn't even exist there. But they say, but God created Islam as part of a process of the creation of the world. God knew that Muhammad was going to be the last prophet when Abraham was here, when Isaac was here. And Abraham is the father of the Muslim people too. So this kind of argument just goes on and on. The Palestinians in their textbooks claim that the Canaanite people were the ancestors of the Palestinians. So that they claim that they were here first. I think it's an absurd argument. What we need to say is that between the river and the sea, there are almost equal numbers of Jews and Palestinians, almost equal numbers, and we're all here. And I like what Rabbi, the late Rabbi Menachem Froman used to say, was that rather than saying we, this land belongs to us, meaning us Israelis or us Palestinians, we belong to this land. We all belong to this land. I personally would not to like to live in this land if there were no Palestinians here. I live in Jerusalem. One of the things I live about, love about Jerusalem is that there's a Palestinian part of Jerusalem also. It's part of my culture. It's part of my society. It's part of where I belong and how I exist in this mosaic of a city that has so many traditions and ethnicities and nationalities and religions and languages. This is part of who we are and what we are in this land. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with you with your your contention with the indigenous claim. You know, even if we could make the claim that we're still indigenous, we were just ex exiled and returned. It's it's impossible to convince another population that you have more right to a land than they do. It's just like starting the argument at a place where you can't even ha have a conversation because they'll never accept that. Instead, let's just focus on the reality that we both live here, we both have a deep connection to this land, and our only possibility is to make it work with one another. Instead of getting stuck in like the semantic argument of who's more, who's less, who deserves this, who deserves that, let's yeah, just accept the reality that we're here together. Yep, totally agree. So you, you mentioned Rabbi Froman, which I would say he's like the OG settler peacemaker. Um, he was the first. Uh, on the issue of, of settlements and, and settlers, would you, do, do you think that they would need to be removed from their homes in order for peace to be attained, or can you see a solution where everybody can remain in their homes? Let me just start out by saying that in a matter of principle, the construction of the Israeli settlements and the territories conquered by Israel in 1967 are illegal by international law. And I believe that they have been one of the primary obstacles to achieving peace until now. Well, I think that's at a level of, of principle that needs to be stated. Um, Israel violated international law, and I don't care what the minority of international lawyers say, 
that the Fourth Geneva Conventions are not valid because there was no legal sovereign prior to 1967. That's true. Jordan illegally annexed the West Bank and East Jerusalem. That's true. Only Pakistan and Britain recognized that annexation. And it's also true that Israel fought a defensive war in 1967 against Jordan, whereas the, Israel launched a preemptive strike against Syria and Egypt. Israel was bombed by Jordan before Israel opened up the Eastern Front and then conquered the West Bank. But nonetheless, international law will, does determine that the transference of civilian population into territories which is conquered in a war, which is called a belligerent occupation, even if it was defensive, is illegal. That's the principle. Nonetheless, it is today, in my estimation, impossible for us to build peace on the basis of having to evacuate thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers from their homes. It is not going to happen. It is impossible to do. It will never get through every, any Israeli referendum or any government decision in the state of Israel. And it also creates a great injustice to people in the second and third generations who were born in those settlements, in those towns. We're going to recognize in doing that, that the whole land of Israel between the river and the sea is important to Jews, and the whole land of Palestine between the river and the sea is important to Palestinians. And in that framework, we're going to have to recognize that if we claim our rights to settle in Beit El and Kedumim and Shiloh and Efrat, that Palestinians who have claims in Jaffa, in Haifa, in Ramle, in Lud, also have just claims that need to be negotiated and reconciled. We're going to need to find solutions that enable us to identify with and have connections to territories whether they be under our direct sovereignty or under the sovereignty of our neighbor in a federation or a confederation or a hybrid model of confederation or federation, we're going to need to recognize that in order to make peace, people should not be required to leave their homes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I view that as just another form of injustice. And despite it being illegal, people have a tendency to follow authority that oversees them. So if you look at settlers, if you meet settlers, aka Jews living uh, in the West Bank, because some, some people are offended by the term settler. And I, There's nothing wrong with the term settlers. It's a description of what they are. They're mityashvim, they're mitnachalim, they're settlers. People object to the term colonizers because they perceive Zionism and, and the whole state of Israel as a Western colonization process. But settler is a neutral term. Yeah, so I, I've had a, a friends of mine who are settlers who said they prefer Jews living in the West Bank or Jews living in Judea and Samaria. I personally think that it, I agree with you it's neutral enough language. I wanted to put it out there as an alternative. But there are some people that, that take offense to it because they don't want to be seen as settling on their ancestral homeland when they view it as returning. So that's that's kind of how they view it. But I guess the point I'm trying to get at is settlers don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They, they were told they're allowed to live there by their government and many of them being religious were told they're allowed to live there because of their God. Now again, whether, whether you agree or disagree with it, it's important to understand that the intention is not, 
it's not nefarious, it's not evil, it's not I'm going to go conquer land, I'm going to go oppress Palestinians, it's none of that, it's simply people, well-intentioned people who just want to live where they feel like that's, you know... There there are two problems with that 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 I would like to mention. One is it's very difficult to claim that uh, your belief that God gave you this land is actually a physical deed to a piece of property. Um, there, there's no deed in, in the Old Testament. It's not a, a deed that you can claim land. And the other problem is that a lot of the settlements were built on private Palestinian land. And Israel has a very sophisticated legal, legal system that enabled these settlements to be built even on privately owned Palestinian land. And when we reach the peace table and we're negotiating again, there's going to be a need to adjudicate land disputes at the personal level. People have a right to claim their property and no one can tell us as Jews who go back to every country in Eastern Europe and claim our old property or compensation for that property. We are the number one leaders in the world in maintaining the rights of private, uh, uh, private international law with regard to property. Well, this is going to be at the table and Palestinians who may finally agree that they're willing to live in peace with their Jewish neighbors in the West Bank um, uh, will say at the end of the day, if you're living on land that belonged to me, we need to settle that dispute. I think the majority of the settlers were what we called economic settlers. They went there because there was cheaper housing, there were subsidized mortgages, you didn't pay for infrastructure. It was advertised as five minutes from Krasaba, with interconnected infrastructure systems. Um, People didn't look at the political dimensions of what they were doing. Most people went, I know when I went to buy an apartment in Jerusalem in 29 years ago, 30 years ago, it would have been a lot cheaper for me to go over the green line into one of the neighborhoods that were built in East Jerusalem, which from a legal point of view are settlements. They have the same status of any settlement in the West Bank. And I just wouldn't do that as a matter of principle. But it would have been a lot easier for myself and my family economically had we decided to do that. I understand that it wasn't a political motivation for probably most of the settlers. It was economic and it was accepted and it was done by the government of Israel and it was advertised in all the newspapers and it was a good deal. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I mean, that you bring light to a deeply flawed policy which essentially incentivizes people to move into a territory that is not only contested, but it's also more dangerous to live there. It's a roadblock to peace. And the more settlers you have, the more military presence you have, the more military presence you have, the more oppression you have of the Palestinian people. So I'm with you that that is one of the most problematic policies put forth by the Israeli government. It seems like, so we're in agreement that settlers should remain a, it's just not practical to uproot them. B, it's a form of injustice that we do not that is not needed in order to create justice. But if we were to speak to most Palestinians, they would say that settlers need to leave. And I'm convinced the reason they they hold that opinion currently is only given the current power dynamic between Israelis and Palestinians, but given a proper reconciliation process that more and more Palestinians would be open to the ideas of having their brothers and sisters in the West Bank be Jewish. 
Now, this kind of brings, brings us to the topic of reconciliation because I think it's something that we often miss. And whenever there is a history of violence or oppression, reconciliation is essential. And this is relevant also to um, the struggles we're seeing with black Americans today. And again, I think this is a topic that is missing from the conversation, reconciliation. So, A, how important do you think reconciliation is? And B, do you have ideas for what that process looks like and what we can really do to, to you know, be- begin that process? I think it's very, very difficult. First of all, I think it's essential. But I think it's something that's a very long process, and I think it's probably only can begin after we have a political agreement. Um, we look at South Africa as an example. It was only once a decision to remove apartheid and create a democratic South Africa that the African state, the new South Africa, created the Truth and Reconciliation Committees that went around and got people to testify about the crimes that they committed on both sides of the conflict during the years in the conflict and to appeal for forgiveness. But it was acknowledgement and forgiveness that was part of a process that was only made possible once there was a political agreement. And I think likewise here, it's going to be impossible to engage in processes of reconciliation where people are gonna own up to the bad things that they did to each other during the conflict while the conflict is continuing. Until there is a political agreement, I don't think that we can really build a reconciliation process. I think we can have um, pioneers in the field, thinkers, begin to sit down and talk about what kind of processes might be possible. In South Africa, they very much use African traditions in the truth and reconciliation process that also included some traditional Christian uh, traditions with a Bishop Desmond Tutu, who is deeply involved in it. I think here, too, we're going to have to find um, aspects of Judaism and Islam and Christianity that will be involved. The religious aspect of the process of reconciliation should be integrated into whatever is devised that will be done in the future. But other than devising the process and thinking about it, I don't really think it's something that we can do until we have a political agreement. Right. And, and you know, that, that's a good point that you would like it to be involved somehow with Judaism and Islam, not for your own personal religious beliefs, but because you think it would just be more effective given the, the religious beliefs of many Israelis and Palestinians. Right. I think it's very important because uh, Jews, Israelis and Palestinians are deeply rooted in their religious traditions. And I think that we can find in the religious traditions of Islam and Judaism elements and aspects that deal with the concept of forgiveness, of slicha, of of asking for um, forgiveness for things that we've done. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point that I have not thought about. Um, I appreciate you bringing that that up. Reconciliation is something that I am starting to focus more and more on because I I want to help spread ideas of a coherent reconciliation process. Do you have any specifics of what it would look like? So you said we first need a political agreement. I would say, would you agree that the political agreement would also come with the reconciliation process? It would be part of the agreement. It would have to be part of the agreement, but we also have to recognize that it's a very long process. It's a generation. It's two generations. It's not a year or two years that we do it and we're finished with the reconciliation. It's really that we need to integrate into our lives. And of course, 
when there is a political agreement, whatever that political agreement is, whatever it looks like in terms of the governmental structures that are developed, the interaction between people, building modicums of cooperation into the agreement of every level of life. And this is one of the disasters of Oslo, that as we progress more and more with Oslo, we got more and more into this separation paradigm of us here and them there and walls and fences. And whereas Oslo process began with the conceptualization of cooperation, the first Oslo agreements built 26 joint Israeli-Palestinian committees that none of them exist today anymore. And what we're going to need to recognize, rather than talking about separation as a paradigm of physically preventing contact, we're going to have to build into the process from now and into the political process cooperation. How do we build that cross-boundary cooperation on everything, on the stuff that's obvious, like fighting corona, like energy, like water, and the environmental threats that we face, climate adaptation and climate change, to economic development, I just wrote my weekly column that to think about the reality where Israel has a per capita income of $40,000 and the West Bank has $3,000, this is not sustainable. We need to put serious effort into thinking about how to build a Palestinian economy where people have a chance of prosperity and a decent life, where young people don't have to dream about having a manual labor job in an Israeli factory or a building site, but to build a startup company in Ramallah or in Janine, or in Tokaram, or in Gaza, to get into high tech and to use the Palestinian brain power, which is no less than the Israeli brain power. It just needs to be given the freedom to develop. And this is where the future lies when we can cooperate in understanding that Israel has no interest in having poor neighbors. It makes no sense whatsoever for us to want our neighbors to be poor. Amen. I'm with you on that. You had a role to play in the uh, releasing of Gilad Shalit, correct? Yeah. Let's talk about that. I'm very interested in what your role is, how, how you came to be in that role, and, and what that really looked like. In around the time that Hamas uh, won the elections, um, I had an opportunity to be at a conference that took place in Cairo, uh, where I was introduced to someone from Gaza who came to Cairo because he heard there might be some Israelis at this conference. It was a conference on Mediterranean development. Uh, and he approached me through a Palestinian colleague from Gaza who was there, who was, happened to be one of his teachers in the past. And he was introduced to me and said, I'm a professor of economics at the Islamic University. I'm the mem a member of Hamas, and I've never met a Jew before, never talked to an Israeli before. I had actually never, more than 20 years of working with Palestinians, had never talked to anyone from Hamas. So we excused ourselves from the conference. We spent about six hours talking over the next couple of days. And while we didn't agree on anything, we agreed that we should continue talking, and we did. Um, we met, and I proposed to him that we expand the dialogue, and we tried to figure out ways of doing it. I put together a group of Israelis. He put together a group of his colleagues from Hamas. And uh, I found three countries that were willing to host these talks that were not members of the European Union and were not Arab countries but they were not far away like Australia, they were close enough to get to. And, and the first country that agreed to host him told me to get the copies of the passports of the Palestinians. And it's a long story to make it short. The Palestinian leadership in the end put a veto on this dialogue. It, it involved me going to Gaza twice to meet with them and to try to convince them, but it didn't work. But this professor and I continued our contact even after that. 
And Gilad Shalit was abducted on June 25th, 2006. Um, we were actually at the final day of a Israeli-Palestinian peace NGO conference on the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side, it, getting ready to leave on the bus to go back to Israel. We heard on the news that some incident happened in Gaza and learned later that day that Gilad Shalit had been killed, abducted and two Israeli soldiers were killed. Um, six days later, on the 1st of July, this professor from Gaza called me and said, Gershon, we have to do something. I said, what do you mean? He said, we're being bombed. We have no water. We have no electricity. The situation is really bad. We have to do something. I said to him, Mohammed, what, what can we do? He said, let's try to open up a channel of communication. He went to the Hamas prime minister's office. They called me half an hour later, and that started a process. Later that day, I organized a phone call between Noam Shalit, Gilad Shalit's father, and one of the Hamas leaders. The next day, the Shalit family came to Jerusalem, and I met them for the first time. Then I spent the next three months trying to get a proof of life. After three months, I produced a letter handwritten by Gilad Shalit that was delivered to the Egyptian headquarters representative office in Gaza and then sent to the Israelis. And then the uh, Egyptians came in the process and didn't want any back channels. Israel was engaged in a war in Lebanon and a war in Gaza at the same time. We were trying to achieve a ceasefire. In, to make a long story, a very long story, very short, because Gilad Shalit was held for five years and four months. Um, over those five years and four months, I continued over and over again to have a secret direct back channel. And most of the time it was rejected by the Israeli side. In April of 2011, when Netanyahu appointed a new person to be in charge of the file, I contacted him, David Meidan. He was an active senior Mossad officer. And I told David Meidan about my contacts in Hamas and told him that I have direct contacts. Um, and uh, after three weeks, when he got into the position and learned the file, he called me and asked me to send a message to Hamas. And I sent a message, and within an hour, I got an answer. And they were blown away because the answer came from Ahmed Jabri, who was the head of the Palestinian military forces responsible for Gaza and keeping Gilad Shalit. And then the Israelis verified that this was a live channel, and David Maidan got permission from Netanyahu to run a secret direct back channel. Netanyahu didn't know it was me. He just knew that David Maidan had a direct back channel, and he got permission to use it. And over the next few months, we and my Palestinian counterpart, Dr. Razi Hamad, uh, negotiated seven versions of a document that the seventh version, which was actually produced on July 14th, 2011, it became known as the breakthrough document. And that was the basis for the agreement that was made between Israel and Hamas later. Gilad came home in October of that year, and it could have been done much earlier, could have been done years earlier, the same agreement, because the Egyptians had reached an agreement with, with Israel and Hamas in December of 2006, six months after he was abducted, for a prisoner exchange of a thousand prisoners for Gilad Shalit in two stages. One, based on a list of 450 names submitted by Hamas, and the second of 550 names submitted by Israel. And that was exactly the agreement that was reached five years later. So that's a fascinating story. And I... There's a book published in, see, I have a copy of it here. A Hebrew version called Le Shachir Gilad. In, it was published by uh, 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 Kinneret. You wrote this as well. 
I wrote this as well, and, and there's an English version, which is told in a different way, wow. called Negotiator, a Refreeing Gilad Shalit from Hamas, published by Toby Press. They're both available on Amazon, and they're available in electronic versions, and uh, I unfortunately have very few copies of them left. Is, is, there a, is there a site where people can find your books? Yeah, my, my own site, gershombaskin.com or gershombaskin.org. Great. I'm, I'm going to link that in the comments. So if anybody's interested, uh, you know, check, check it out. Uh, I'm, I myself am, am going to check it out. So okay. as one of the only Israelis in the entire world who has contact with Hamas, are, are, you, are you still in contact with them? You still I am. Them? I've been trying for six years now to also deal with the two bodies of Israeli soldiers in Gaza and the two Israeli civilians. Any progress with them? No. It's a, it's a repeat of the Gilad Shalit saga, only worse, because there's no public pressure in Israel to really do anything significant to bring them home. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's unfortunate. So, as, like I said, one of the only living Israelis who's in touch with Hamas, do, do you think we can make peace with Hamas, or will they need to be defeated in order... No, I don't think there's any way that we can defeat them, and I think that... Uh, Hamas is, is a different movement today than when it was founded, um, and it's going through changes and developments. Uh, not that they've become moderates and Chovavetzion or lovers of Zion, but uh, they have become a lot more pragmatic. They are very difficult to deal with. Um, they deal extensively uh, with issues of principle. Um, even though they found ways of being pragmatic, of developing ceasefire agreements with Israel and maintaining mechanisms of communication that allow goods to enter and people to leave, um, they are extremely difficult to deal with. Um, and, and a lot of our friends in Gaza suffer deeply from them, including people that we know who are peace activists who have been arrested by Hamas for their peace activities in Gaza, including two good friends who were arrested at the beginning of the corona epidemic when they, when they held a Zoom with Israelis to talk about the situation in Gaza, and Hamas arrested eight of them. There are two that remain in prison for months already, just for talking with Israelis. So it, it is a... One of them was actually on this show, uh, Rami Aman, a friend of mine. Uh... Rami, Rami is, is in prison still in yeah. Gaza, and we've been trying through back channels to get him released. We got one of the people... Um, released, uh, uh, who's out now, but there are Rami and someone named Ahmed is still being held by Hamas. And we're quite worried about them. It sometimes makes me lose hope because when I see people like Rami, I say, wow, you know, a Palestinian who cares, not only a Palestinian, a Gazan who cares so much about peace and is willing to engage with people on the other side, and not only willing to engage with people on the other side, is an advocate for that type of behavior amongst his Palestinian peers and then he's taken and put in jail and that will demoralize anybody who even considered speaking to I think that we have to recognize that uh, I believe that a majority of people in Gaza actually believe in the things that Rami believes in um, but but it's too dangerous for them to act today and when there's no viable option and no horizon for improving life in Gaza no evidence on the horizon that any peace deal is in the making or negotiations or some way of improving the situation of offering hope, people aren't going to take the street and risk their lives demonstrating for something right. which seems so non-viable. Right. 
So, you know, given all that, you still think that we need to find a way to work with Hamas. How do you think... I think Hamas is part of the Palestinian people. It is a political movement. I think it's important to realize that a lot of people who vote for Hamas don't support what we perceive to be the ideology of Hamas. Right. Most people around the world, when we vote, including in Israel, we usually don't vote out of deep ideology. We vote out of emotions. We vote because we like the way a candidate looks or sounds, or that they know how to speak English well, or, or that they're great public speakers, or whatever. We vote for a lot of different reasons. And my estimation is that no more than 15% of the people of Gaza, which is a big number, support the ideology that we believe is the ideology of Hamas. Um, but even within that number, um, I think that there's room for understanding that Hamas is a lot less dogmatic than it was at the time it was created. And you think they can continue to become more and more moderate, um, given the- I think the it region. depends on what develops on the ground. We have more wars with Gaza and kill thousands of people and make hundreds of thousands of people homeless um, and deny their ability to live. They're living in a cage. Um, if that continues longer, we, we just create more enemies and more reason right. for hatred. Right. There's a lot that we could do to change public opinion in Gaza. Israel has a lot of power here. Of course, we don't control Gaza internally, but we control Gaza externally. And we can, we can make life in Gaza a lot easier or a lot harder. And, you know, I want to reinforce a very important point you made that I, I think more people should understand. What we hate the most about Hamas is not what the Palestinians love about Hamas. We're viewing them from two separate angles. We view the aspect of Hamas that that wants to destroy us, but they like the aspect of Hamas that make them feel like they're protected, like they're cared for, um, like they're taken care of. And it's it's quite similar here in Israel. Palestinians often ask me, they're like, if Israelis aren't all racist and if they don't hate Palestinians, why do they keep voting for Bibi? Well, so, why do they go to the army? Right, exactly. And it's important to understand where our support comes from and it's not for the same reasons why they dislike that individual or entity so i think that's very important mm -hmm. i'd like to move on to a nice little speed round of questions this content will be exclusive for patreon members so if you are not yet a patreon member you can see a link somewhere on the screen or even in the description and this will be a new theme for all the interviews we're gonna have a fun little speed round so first comes first. Gerson, have you seen the documentary? It's a seven-part documentary, The Tiger King. Last but not least, what is one piece of advice or what would you say to the people of Israel and Palestine or anybody who cares about this conflict? What can they do to contribute to peace? I think in the absence of any government that's going to lead us in the direction right now, we have the ability to contact each other through social media. And what I tell students and people that I lecture to all the time is find a random person on Facebook, knock on the door and say, hey, my name is so-and-so, I wanna to listen to you. I wanna know your story, tell me about yourself. I've never experienced a situation before when I've said to someone, I want to listen to you, that they said, no, I won't talk to you. Don't argue, don't start up debating, say that you want to listen. And you will find an open door. And I encourage as many of us to do that as possible. The more personal relationships that we can develop across this conflict line, the easier it will be 
to create peace in the future. I also say, I, I, one of my slogans is that I will talk to anyone who's willing to talk to me. I have no red lines on that. No one's a terrorist, no one's, as long as they're sitting and talking with me without a gun pointed at me, then I'm willing to talk to them, anyone. I'm with you. And how can people find you um, if somebody wants to reach out, ask you questions? It's really easy to find on, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and any of the social media. Google me. There are probably hundreds of thousands of links. I have a weekly column in the Jerusalem Post every Thursday. It's published now in Arabic in Al-Quds newspaper during the week and on a Haredi website called 400.org.il um, in Hebrew. So my weekly columns are now reaching to much larger parts of the world, the population. Um, my, my last article in Al-Quds was the, amongst the most read articles on the Al-Quds website this past week, which is, is an achievement I, I like. I have another one coming out in a couple of days. And my uh, Jerusalem Post column, my new column will be coming out tomorrow. Great. I will uh, put links to all of those in the comments. Gershon, it's been a great pleasure. It really has and continue standing up for something so important.